when we come to the book of Ruth, <coughs> uh, what we should first consider where this book is placed in the Old Testament. And in our English Old Testaments, it is put after the book of Judges and before the book of Samuel. And this is driven by the fact that the book opens with the, word, with the words, in the days when the judges ruled. So the book is set in the time of the judges, and then it's put before the book of Samuel because the book concludes with a genealogy that works its way down to David. In, in uh, Hebrew Old Testaments, in, in, in the actual uh, his, uh, Old Testament canon that, that has come down to us through the centuries, uh, Ruth was oft, often placed before the Psalms. It, it's part of the writings. It's not part of the, 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 what's known as the prophets, uh, being Joshua through Second uh, Kings. It's not part of the, the uh, former prophets. It's placed instead among the writings. And initially, it seems to have been put before the Psalms, again, because of the Davidic genealogy. And then later, it was gathered together with other smaller books and the writings like Ecclesiastes and Lamentations and Song of Songs and then uh, Ruth and Esther. These five books were smaller books and they were gathered together and, and, and treated as, as almost a unit, the small scrolls, the, the Megilot is the way it was referred to. Um, at, at any rate, when we come to this book, it's, it's set in the time of the judges and as you remember from your reading of Judges, that's a very bad time in Israel's history. It's a time when everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And this story shows us that, that in that time, God is at work in, in Israel, but He is at work among the little people. He's at, he's at work where you wouldn't expect it. He's at work, of all places, in, in a Moabite girl who, who's the widow of an Israelite man who comes back to the land with, with a woman who had fled the land. And so as, as the book opens, it's in the days when the judges ruled and there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. And this is ironic uh, because uh, the, the name Bethlehem is uh, house of bread. And so there's a famine and it drives this man who lives in the house of bread, Bethlehem, out of the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. And, he, and he's driven, he leaves the land of promise and he goes over to the country of Moab. And, and I think that there's probably an element of uh, abandoning of God's purpose here. There's an element of him uh, not pursuing the agenda that God has given to Israel. And instead he's, he's seeking to sustain his life. And, and so there, there's a there's a forsaking of the land of promise, the land from which God's glory was to radiate out until it covered the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. So he and his wife and his two sons, they go over to Moab. Uh, we learn their names. And then uh, we're, we're told in verse 3 of Ruth chapter 1 that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. And they took Moabite wives. Now, here again, I think that this is a subtle uh, negative mark against Elimelech and Naomi and their sons. Not only have they left the land of promise, they've now intermarried with Moabites. So, so they're not pursuing the agenda that God has given to Israel. They're, they're not uh, in the land pursuing the glory of God. They are outside the land pursuing their own sustenance, and, and they're doing so 
um, in ways that contradict what the Lord has commanded Israel to do. So there's this very strong text back in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, which says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And then, and then the reason is given, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. And so there's this statement back in Deuteronomy that, that uh, no Moabites can enter the assembly of the Lord. And what we see in the book of Ruth is, is that God's mercy triumphs over judgment, as the book of James puts it. And so here in the book of Ruth, we see a place where the Lord is, is gathering in a Gentile, even a Gentile that he himself has said, none of those Moabites should enter into the assembly. And, and Ruth is brought in uh, because of her remarkable faith in God and, and the Lord's mercy to Ruth overcomes the, the judgment pronounced back in Deuteronomy 23. So uh, it's still, however, it's still not an act of, of faith or faithfulness for the sons of Elimelech and Naomi to take Moabite wives. And then they, they live there in verse 4 about 10 years. And then the sons die, Machlon and Kilion, they die, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now let's just observe, Ruth and Orpah have been married to Machlon and Kilion for 10 years and no offspring, no children, apparently, because when Naomi arises to return to Bethlehem, she dismisses these, these daughters-in-law and sends them back to the homes of their mothers and, and there, there's no mention of any grandchildren. And so, so Naomi has been bereaved. Naomi has lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She has now no way for the line of descent to continue. And so she's bitter about this. She wants to send them back. And, and Ruth's words are famous when Naomi urges her to return uh, Ruth says in Ruth 1.16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth probably has learned from Naomi and Elimelech and the, and the, the sons Machlon and Kilion the, the contours of the religion of Israel. And, and she's apparently come to know the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so she says to Naomi, your God will be my God. And I think that we should understand Ruth's devotion to, to Naomi here in religious terms. We should understand her committing herself to Yahweh and renouncing the false gods of her people. Then she says in verse 17, where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. And then here she uses the covenant name of the Lord. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so Naomi is, uh, Ruth is, is determined, and Naomi sees this, this determination, and she doesn't object anymore. So they come back to Bethlehem, and all Bethlehem is astir at the return of Naomi. And Naomi makes this very bitter remark, 
when, when, when they say in verse 19, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Her name means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. And, and, and Mara means bitter. So she's, she's saying, don't call me bit, uh, pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Meaning, she went away with a husband and sons, and now she comes back with, with only this Moabite girl who is, in, in her estimation, worthless. And, and so this is, this is uh, setting the stage for the way that the Lord is going to work in unexpected ways among little people who are not regarded as significant. And, and so um, Naomi returned here in Ruth 1.22 and, and her daughter-in-law Ruth, and they come to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And uh, so what's going to happen is, is Ruth is going to go out to glean. And at this point in the story, um, no mention is made of any kinsman who might redeem Ruth. It, it's set up as though Ruth just happens to find her way to the field of the kinsman redeemer. And we read that there in Ruth chapter 2 verse 3, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And, and that's not really what the narrator thinks. The narrator is showing us that, that, that God is at work behind the scenes. God is at work orchestrating these events so that Ruth winds up in the field of Boaz. She doesn't wind up in the field of Mr. So-and-so that we're going to see in chapter 4. She winds up in the field of Boaz, who's, who is related to Naomi, and he, he's not the nearest relative, but he's the relative who's going to be noble and do what's right. And, and the Lord is protecting Ruth and guiding her steps through this. And, and we see what kind of man Boaz is um, in, in this narrative. And, and this, is, this is very terse. It's, it's, it's not elaborated upon. But we're, when we're told in, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. This is, this is, these are very compact statements, but they tell us a lot about the character of Boaz. They tell us that Boaz is a man who's, who is conscious of Yahweh. And Boaz is a man who, who is concerned that his workers, his laborers, be aware of God's presence. And, and that, that's going to influence everything that Boaz does. And then the way that the workers answer him also shows us what kind of, of um, foreman, what kind of, of uh, master Boaz is. They don't, they don't snicker. They don't make remarks about his God. They, they respond, Yahweh bless you. So, so these workers, they're, they're evidently convinced this guy, Boaz, he really cares about us. He wants us to know the Lord. And so when he, when he says to us, the Lord be with you, we respond to him, the Lord bless you. you you're a good man, and, and we're blessed to be your servants. And so I think this tells us a lot about what kind of man Boaz is. And, and then we also see that Boaz is, is concerned about other people. You know, you know, some people who are in charge, when, when they show up to, to places, they don't notice anybody. They're just in this for themselves. They don't see people. They don't take note of, of new people. But that's not how Boaz is. Boaz shows up and he, and he notices Ruth 
and he says, whose young woman is this? And, and we see that he's not, just, he's not just gazing at the ladies, because when they answer, they say she is the young woman, young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, and then they tell her what she says. And then Boaz in verse 8, he's looking out to protect uh, Ruth, and he's looking out for what's good for Ruth. He's, he's not looking to take advantage of her, and he's not overlooking her. He's looking for ways to protect her and, and to provide for her. So in Ruth 2, 8, we read, Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you. In other words, he's saying to her, you're going to be safe. You're, you're going to be safe here with my young men. You might not be safe in other fields, so don't go there. But here you're going to be safe, and, and I've told the men not to bother you. And then, and then he says in verse 9, let your eye be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. I, I, I read that. And then he says in the middle of verse 9, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And, and so he's providing for her and he's pro protecting her. And, and she recognizes this and, and she wants to know why uh, he's been so kind to her in verse 10. And in verse 11, he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And so he's heard about her and, and, and now he's, he's repaying her kindness. And then he says in verse 12, Yahweh repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So in Boaz's mind, Ruth has been kind to Naomi because Ruth has sought Yahweh. Ruth has come to Israel to seek refuge under the wings of Yahweh. And, and so Boaz sees in Ruth someone who is concerned for the Lord, someone who loves the Lord, and someone whose love for the Lord results in her being kind to Naomi. And, and Boaz responds to that in kind. Boaz is, res, is responding in ways that evidence his concern for the Lord and his desire to, to do what is right for others because of the Lord. And then he, he lavishes uh, good food on her at mealtime, and then he, he makes it so that uh, she... Um, she gleans a lot. She's very uh, uh, productive in her work because of Boaz's generosity. And then and Naomi recognizes this and, and blesses um, the man in whose field uh, she reaped. And then when Ruth tells her who it was in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our Redeemers, And this is the first time this enters into the narrative. Now we know that, that something more might happen as a result of this, this meeting. And this something more is uh, concocted by Naomi in chapter 3. And I think that the narrative is, is depicting these events so that Naomi wants to set things up in ways that are suggestive. And what we see in this narrative is that Ruth and Boaz, though probably aware of everything that Naomi has suggested, Ruth and Boaz conduct, conduct themselves in ways that are virtuous and in ways that are upright and noble and pure. And I think that we can also uh, 
remember here something else that happened at a, at a threshing floor with, with Judah. And, and I'll just uh, briefly allude to this and then we'll come back to it. You remember that in, in Genesis chapter 38, um, Judah has these wicked sons. They're put to death. Uh, interesting. Naomi had these two sons. They died. And then um, uh, Judah did not want to give the widow of, of, of the two sons to his next son because, um, because essentially he didn't want any, any of his other sons to die. And so he, he uh, did not give his third son to this woman, Tamar. And then Tamar, what she did was she disguised herself and she placed herself on the road to the threshing floor and Judah thought that she was a prostitute and went into her and she conceived and she gave birth to uh, Perez and Zerah. And Perez is going to come into the genealogy in Ruth chapter 4, which I think is, in, I mean, the, you know, the narrator knows this. And, and, and this is, again, God's providence at work because what's going to happen at this fresh threshing floor in Ruth chapter 3 is going to be a contrast, contrast with what happened at the threshing floor back in Genesis 38. So let's, let's look at the narrative. Naomi said uh, to Ruth in Ruth 3.1, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, what happened in Genesis 38 is, is sort of, um, uh, I think, indicative of, of what kind of place the threshing floor was. Uh, meaning, this is a place where the men go, without the women. And so this is a place where probably if, if, you're, if you're looking for a prostitute, you, you, you can probably find them at the threshing floor because the men are going to be down there doing their work. It's away from the town. It's away from the women. And, and uh, this, this is a bad part of town. And, um, and so Naomi is, is being, I think, suggestive here. So she says in verse 3, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, Naomi hasn't been explicit about what she's suggesting, but I think that we can see where she's going. I think that probably she is, she's trying to orchestrate the situation so that something will happen that will result in Boaz feeling obligated to, to marry Ruth and be the kinsman redeemer to Ruth and Naomi. Ruth replies, all that you say I will do, which I think shows us that, that uh, Ruth is going to be obedient. She's going to be submissive. She's going to obey her mother-in-law. She's not going to buck the authority. But that doesn't mean she's going to do everything that the mother-in-law has suggested. And, and, and here, I think that what we want to do is not, not do eisegesis, not read into the narrative, but read the narrative and let the narrative tell us what happens. In other words, we don't want to go beyond the text. We don't want to import into the text something that the text doesn't say. And so let's read what the text says. Verse 6 of Ruth 3, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly 
and uncovered his feet and lay down. She does everything that Naomi tells her. But notice, she doesn't bother to draw Boaz's attention. She doesn't wake him up. She just goes over there and lays down. And then at verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled. Now, this text is indicating he didn't know she was there. He's startled. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. So, so at midnight, he wakes up. He didn't realize she was there before. There she is. And she answered, he, he said in verse 9, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. Notice Boaz, he, Boaz is in a situation where he could take advantage of Ruth. Boaz is in a situation where he could easily get away with uh, everything that Naomi has suggested. Ruth ought to uh, set up. And immediately what comes out of Boaz's mouth is, may you be blessed by Yahweh. This man fears the Lord. This man is aware of God's presence. He says, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. Now, that's a term of affection, and that's a term that says, I'm going to treat you like a father should treat his daughter. You can rest secure. You are not going to be taken advantage of in this situation. And then he says in verse 10, he, he knows what this implies. He says in verse 10, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So Boaz knows that, that this is uh, essentially a, a subtle request that, um, that he redeem. So, and so she said that in verse 9, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And, and what Boaz is thinking is not, hey, this is going to be a great night. This is going to be a fling. No, what Boaz is thinking is she could have gone after younger men than I, and she's come to me. God bless her. I'm going to treat her like a daughter. And then look what he says in verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Don't fear. You're not going to be taken advantage of here tonight. Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. I will be your redeemer and I will marry you and I will buy the field and I will take care of you and Naomi and we're going to do it right. We're going to get married before we do anything that Naomi has, has suggested. He says, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz doesn't want to debase this woman of noble character because Boaz is a man of God and Boaz fears the Lord and he sees in Ruth a woman of God and he sees in Ruth someone who fears the Lord. Then he says in verse 12, he's going to do what's right. He says in verse 12, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So in this, in this situation that Naomi intends to be suggestive and perhaps shady, uh, Boaz and Ruth conduct themselves with nobility and uprightness. 
Boaz, it doesn't even seem that he's tempted to do evil. And, and Ruth, she does everything that Naomi says, but she doesn't even bother waking the man up. She lets him go to sleep, and then he's startled to find her there at midnight. And then, and then when he wakes, she speaks to him in, in religious terms and, and says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Uh, this is essentially Ruth appealing to Boaz to, new, to do what's commanded in the law, which, which is going to be a, a reminder of God, and it's going to be a reminder of what godliness looks like. There's nothing suggestive coming out of Ruth's mouth or Boaz's mouth, and, and I think that this points to their virtue and their character. Verse 14 of Ruth 3, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he wants to protect her reputation. Nothing shady has happened. Nothing out of place has happened. And he's, he's wanting to guard against any rumors beginning to circulate. And uh, then, then he provides for her and sends her back. And, uh, and Naomi sees what has happened. And uh, Naomi knows that... that uh, Boaz is going to take care of them. And then in Ruth 4, we see this interchange between Boaz and the nearer Redeemer. And, and, and this is a, an, an ironic narrative that's very instructive for us. So, so look at Ruth 4, 1 and following. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, the one who's nearer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Notice the man's name is not used. Turn aside, friend. And, and in, in Hebrew, the phrase that's used here, you could render this Mr. So-and-so. Turn aside, uh, Mr. So-and-so, sit down here. And so he does so. And Boaz gets 10 men of the elders of the city. And, and he's doing everything by the book. He's, he wants this attested uh, to correctly. And then he said to the Redeemer in verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so this is the tribal inheritance. This is the parcel of ground that fell to Elimelech by lot, and now they're doing everything just as the law commanded to do. Verse 4, So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz springs the trap. Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So this is the deal. You, you buy the ground, and then you take the wife of the deceased in, in what's known as a leveret marriage. And this is exactly what was going on back in Genesis 38 with Judah. And, and his sons and, and this woman Tamar. And then the idea is you raise up offspring not for yourself but for the deceased. In other words, you're not being selfish here. You're not just gathering property that's going to enrich you. No, you're saying I'm going to work this land but I'm going to work it for someone else. And, and I'm going to raise up a child by this dead man's wife who's going to inherit that land, so it's not going to be mine. And, and uh, I think that what we see in, in this guy's response, what we see is that, that uh, in, 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 in various, uh, at various points when this got worked out, maybe, maybe in a situation like this someone takes uh, the wife of the deceased, by, of a deceased brother or something by leveret marriage and, and and has a son by that union, 
but then by his own wife he doesn't have a son. And then his tribal inheritance actually goes to the, the son of the other man, even though he fathered the child. And, and it could result in his own offspring uh, being deprived of benefits that they might otherwise have received. And this guy wants to prevent any of that. So he says, he says in verse 6, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So he's looking out for himself. He doesn't want to raise up a name for the dead man, verse 5. And, and, he, and he's not even concerned that he's obligated to do this before God. He, he's looking out for himself and his own name and his own inheritance. And as a result, as a result, his name is never used in this narrative. So this guy's looking out for his own name and he loses his name. And, and, he, and he becomes an example of, of someone who's selfish and someone um, who, who, because of his selfishness, is not blessed. He misses an opportunity to have his name recorded in the genealogy that becomes the genealogy of the king of Israel because he's looking out for his own name. And, and there's a message communicated here that says, if you want a great name, don't pursue a great name. If you want a great name, go hard after the Lord and be an unselfish person who does things for other people. That will result in you having a great name. If you go after a great name for yourself, the result is going to be that nobody's going to care about you. And, and your name is not going to be recorded because God has set the universe up to, to give grace to the humble and to oppose the proud. That's the way things work. So uh, Boaz redeems and he, he uh, buys uh, Ruth the Moabite uh, as his wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance in verse 10, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate, gate of his native place. Now what's interesting here is that technically Boaz is raising up an, a, a seed for the dead, but whose name is in the genealogy? Boaz's name is in the genealogy, and that's because Boaz is being unselfish. And yes, he's raising up a name for the dead, but we don't, I don't think it's clear even whether Ruth is married to Machlon or Kilion. We don't even know which one of these dead guys uh, the seed is being raised up for because Boaz has acted in a noble, unselfish, Bible-obeying way for the benefit of others, and, and he's rewarded. Uh, and so... Uh, they say in verse 11, um, we are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Uh, Leah was Judah's mother, right? Yeah. And may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Benjamin, Bethlehem. They say this to, to Boaz. And then in verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. And, and so there, there are these deliberate allusions back to Genesis 38. And I think that, um, that we're being shown a narrative where God is at work among the little people. And, and this time there's no, there's no sin at the threshing floor. There's nobility. There's righteousness and there's holiness and there's, there's uh, unselfishness that is resulting in blessing. And so Boaz took Ruth. Now remember, uh, Ruth had been married to one of those guys, Maclon or Kilion, for 10 years with no offspring. And Ruth 4.13 4 says, she became his wife 
And he went into her, and Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. And uh, then he's named Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, in verse 17, the father of David. And then the, geneal uh, the genealogy that closes the book. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So uh, Boaz winds up in the genealogy of David. And then both Ruth and the one uh, uh, whose tale hers is like, Tamar, who may have been a Gentile herself, uh, the, one, the one who gave birth to, to Perez by Judah uh, back in Genesis 38. They both wind up mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus over in Matthew chapter 1. And what we're shown is that, that the Lord does intend to bring the Gentiles in, and He mercifully does so on His terms. He does so when they become devotees of, of His name and, and when they uh, believe His word and, and act like they believe it, just as, as Ruth does in this narrative. And we're also shown that even in the, in the darkest days, even in the days when the judges ruled Israel, and there's no king in Israel and everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes, God is at work, but it, he, He's not necessarily at work where you might think He would be at work. He's at work among, among unexpected people in unexpected places. Uh, Boaz, in this narrative, calls Ruth my daughter. And, and in the narrative, Naomi also calls Ruth my daughter, which indicates that Boaz may be as old as Naomi, especially in light of the fact that, that he says to, to Ruth over in chapter 3, verse 10, that she has not gone after the young men. And so here you've got this guy who's maybe older, and, and, and you wouldn't expect necessarily that this old bachelor named Boaz, who's pious, who, who's concerned for his workers, who's treating everyone in noble, upright, honest ways, you wouldn't expect him to be the guy that gets ahead, right? Nice guys finish last. Nice guys who are older, this, we're not concerned about him, he's not glamorous. And then, lo and behold, God blesses him, and he winds up in the genealogy of the Messiah. So this book of Ruth, Ruth teaches us about the providential hand of God. It teaches us about the way that the Lord is at work um, among unexpected people. We wouldn't necessarily expect to find the Lord at work among an old guy who's not glamorous and a Moabite girl who's a widow, and she was married for 10 years, and she didn't have any kids. She's clearly not blessed of the Lord, right? That's, that's the way things are going. But they love the Lord. They're faithful to His Word. They do what the law requires by faith. And God blesses them in, in, in astonishing ways. And they wind up being uh, the, the, the uh, great-grandparents of King David. And then they wind up named in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The book of Ruth is, is a glorious story. I encourage you to read it and reread it until you know it backwards and forwards and until you see patterns and parallels between this book and other books. That they're, they're all over the place. So let me encourage you to, to be a devoted student of the Scriptures. And uh, that's, our, that's our time with Ruth. When we come back in the next session, we will spend some time in the book of Esther, which teaches us similar lessons about the Lord being at work in in unexpected people and in unexpected ways.